Father, again, we thank you for tonight and for your word. We pray your special blessing on our Bible study. Help us to glean these wonderful truths from your word. Speak to us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 35 and Psalm 36 are called imprecatory psalms. Imprecate means to invoke evil. And these two psalms belong to a genre of psalms called the cursing psalms or the imprecatory psalms. In them, the writer basically blasts his enemies. The psalmist rains down curses and he lashes out at evil, but often in violent ways. One author writes, the main message of the imprecatory psalms is this, rage belongs before God. You know, when you're the victim of evil, there are really three ways that you can respond. You can strike back in anger, or you can just bottle up your feelings, or you can take your desire for justice and present it to God. That's what the psalmist does in these imprecatory psalms. My favorite line in this genre of psalms is found in Psalm 58, verse 6. Jot it down. You can look it up later. Psalm 58, verse 6. There David prays, break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Isn't there something within you that just likes that? Haven't you ever wanted to pray that prayer? Lord, just break their teeth off in their mouth. You know who I'm talking about, God. I don't have to name them here tonight. Bust their chops, O Lord. Lord of love, bust their chops. I mean, I've wanted to pray that kind of prayer. I mean, there's a sense of justice in us. There's a sense of righteousness. We want things done right. We want things to be just. We want evil to be punished. We want those that fight against God to be defeated. There's something in us that calls for that. Philip Yancey writes, Instinctively, we want to clean up our feelings in our prayers. But perhaps we have it all backwards. We should strive to take all our worst feelings to God. Maybe that's true. You know, better to pray it than to say it. Better than pray it than to do it. Remember, rage belongs before God. Our desire for vindication, our our longing for justice and righteousness can only be satisfied by God Himself. That's why we need to constantly bring these feelings to God. Now, David was a godly man who had these feelings. He he had feelings. He he desired righteousness in the world. He desired justice. He was a godly man with a fiery temper. David hated sin, and he got angry at sinners. But his anger was corralled by his tendency to take his feelings to God. David was good at bringing his rage before the Lord. In these imprecatory psalms tonight, God allows David the opportunity to vent his anger. God allows you that opportunity to do the same in prayer. C.S. Lewis once observed, If the Jews cursed more bitterly than pagans, it was because they took right and wrong more seriously. I agree. This explains some of the harsh statements that David makes in these two chapters here tonight. Psalm 35 and 36. Well, verse 1 says, Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Wow. As Christians, Jesus elevates us to a higher standard. We're to love our enemies. We're to love those who hate us. But David's concern is not about the outlaw himself, but about the outcome. You can love the sinner, yet you can ask God to thwart his sinful plans. That's what David does here. He says, Lord, fight against those who fight against me. That's a fair prayer. Many times I've prayed, Lord, I love him, but please don't let him get away with what he's doing. He needs to be stopped. That's a fair prayer. And that's basically the essence of Psalm 35. He goes on, he says, Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. The situation involving David was King Saul, King Saul's jealousy and his hatred toward David. And yet that was only part of the problem. Other men that David considered to be friends at the time were lying about him and slandering against him. 
And they were taking political advantage while David was away as a fugitive. And of course, David could do nothing about any of this sabotage that was going on around him. He was on the run. He was in exile. He was away from the court and away from Israel. He could do nothing to stop it except to pray this prayer. And so he prayed, Lord, fight against those who fight against me. He says, let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind, and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery, and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly, and let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. Lord, let him fall into his own trap. You know, like Haman, let him swing from the gallows that he made for Mordecai. Let him fall into his own trap, Lord. Did you hear about the guy who robbed the store by picking up the manhole cover and throwing it through the front window of the store? Of course, his getaway was complicated when he stepped back into the hole that he had just uncovered. Here He's saying, Lord, let my enemies, let them fall into the trap that they've created. Let, let it be a trap. For themselves. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. You know, something in all of us takes joy when we see the poor man triumph over his oppressor. Like, like yesterday when Georgia Tech finally did beat the University of Georgia. Something in all of us. Likes to see the underdog prevail, you know. We like to see justice prevail. When the bad guy gets what's coming to him, something in all of us gets satisfied. Always cheer when Rocky slugs Drago, you know, right there at the end and bam, knocks him to the ground. Uh, Always cheer. Every time I watch the movie, I always cheer. 400 times I've cheered for Rocky when he decked Drago. It's not revenge. We, we, we like seeing justice served. David liked seeing justice served. Here he prays for such. Verse 11. Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. I mean, the man who's now turned his back on David is the same fellow that David had prayed for when he was sick. I mean, David had sat with this man's family in the ICU and was there praying for his friend, or at least he thought he was his friend. But now that David is in trouble, his friend has turned against him. He's become his enemy. He says, but in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. His enemies plotted against him. David had no idea about their clandestine meetings when they had all gathered together to try to plot his demise, set up his ambush. He didn't know about it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the loins. He's not necessarily praying for their safety or their salvation. He's praying for his own salvation. He's praying that God would rescue him for those who are trying to oppress him and and, and kill him. He says, I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. In other words, they falsely accused David. This you have seen, O Lord. Do not keep silence. O Lord, do not be far from me. Sit up your, stir up yourself and awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God and my Lord. 
Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, ah, so we would have it. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and your praise all the day long. That's Psalm 35. Again, when people are against you, when you're being attacked, when you find yourself the innocent victim, there are three ways that you can respond to the rage and anger that produces. You can bottle it up. That's not good. You can lash out and strike back. That's not good. Or you can do what David did. You can take all of these feelings and you can vent them. You can just present them before the Lord. Remember, rage belongs before God. That's where you're safest. Now, Psalm 36 is prefaced, the Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. And as king, I'm sure that David had many titles. He was probably called your highness or your majesty or your anointed. But here was his favorite title, servant of the Lord. Verse 1, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. Here's a man who flatters himself when he needs to repent. In other words, he doesn't come clean. He doesn't confess his sin. In fact, he denies his sin. Did you know the surest sign of sin is the refusal to admit his existence? To just deny sin is the worst sin. Author Thomas Carlyle wrote, The deadliest sin is the consciousness of no sin. I mean, you plop an anvil down on the chest of a dead man lying in his casket, and what's going to happen? Nothing. He's not going to feel the weight of that anvil because he's dead. This is the problem. Dead men are immune to the guilt and to the burden of sin. If you're involved in sin and you don't feel that guilt, you don't feel that shame, that's trouble. If you're alive to God, you'll feel that sin. You'll know that you've sinned. You'll want to confess it. You won't be able to shake it. Only the spiritually dead person is the one who feels no guilt. He goes on, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. I mean, this is the man who's not just well-meaning and and occasionally slips up in sin. No, here's the man who lays down at night, and, and he's in his bed thinking and premeditating, how can I sin? You know, how can I get my way? How can I take advantage of others? This is the man that David has in mind. Verse 5 contrasts God's mercy with this evildoer. He says, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. There are men who plot evil against God, whereas God goes to the other extreme to preserve man. Isn't that interesting contrast? Notice the extremities to which God goes for us. His mercy extends to the heavens. His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. His righteousness is as sturdy as a mountain. His wisdom descends to the depths of the sea. He says, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Like little chicks sheltered under the wings of that mother hen. God protects his own. He protects his children. This is the picture that always comes to mind when I read Paul's statement about us. In Colossians 3, verse 3, where he says, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love that. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're like little chicks, you know, sheltered under God's protective wings. Our life is hid in Him. Verse 8, They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house 
And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For you, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. You know, Satan's drink, Satan's sodas, they wet the mouth, but they don't satisfy the thirst. Remember Jesus told the woman at the well that if she drank of the water he had to offer, she would never thirst again. Of course, he was talking about the spiritual nourishment that he provided. Hey, Jesus is the real thirst quencher. He alone is the river of pleasure, as the psalmist says. He says, oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and not able to rise. Psalm 36. Now along with Psalm 49 and Psalm 73, you can write those two down, Psalm 49 and Psalm 73, along with those two psalms, Psalm 37 deals with the age-old question, if God is good and just, then why do evil men prosper? Ever wondered that? Ever asked that question? Yep. Psalm 37 deals with that question. It's interesting, this psalm is an acrostic. In Hebrew, each section of the psalm begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Thus, it made it easier for the psalm to be memorized. Psalm 37 was written by David when he was an old man. He had seen lots of life by this point, and he feels ready to tackle this difficult question. Why do the wicked prosper? He begins... Do not fret because of evildoers. Boy, how much fretting we do because of evildoers. When we see the abortionist and the pornographer and the drug lords and the sweatshop owners pocketing billions of dollars, doesn't it make you angry? Doesn't it get you upset? It should. It should make you furious. Why do evil men profit from their exploitation? And yet David tells us, do not fret because of evildoers. Don't fret it. Don't, don't get bent out of shape. Nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Don't fret it because their judgment will come soon enough. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Rather than fret, have faith. You can fret or you can have faith. You can trust in God and do good. You can feed on His faithfulness. Don't get eaten up with resentment. Don't take vengeance into your own hands and act like the men that you despise. Feed on God's faithfulness. God will settle these scores. God will right these wrongs. Judgment will come soon enough. Don't fret it. Have faith. He goes on. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. You know, when you find no joy in this world, then delight or take joy in the Lord. You find yourself doing that a lot. Rejoice in all that Jesus is and does and gives. And He'll begin to shape the desires of your heart. You know, often we pit... Seeking God's will against seeking our will. Whereas here, God's will and my will are not at odds at all. He says, if you delight in Jesus, He promises to make His desires your desires. He harmonizes our heart with His will. Delight yourself in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart because the desires of your heart will become His desires if you delight yourself in the Lord. He says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. The word commit here means to roll over. In other words, just roll over your life and your loves and your ways and your plans. Just roll all of that stuff over onto God, and He'll make it all good. Whenever you have a care, whenever you have a worry, just roll it over onto God. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. You know, in this life, things are not always as they seem. The truth doesn't always come out. 
You know, the righteous isn't always evident. There were a couple of bad calls today in the Falcons game. And even with instant replay, the truth didn't come out. The Falcons were still ripped off. But one day, righteousness, all the right calls will be made. God will make sure that all the right calls are made. All the rights will be rewarded. All the wrongs will be righted. One day, righteousness will shine. Justice will shine as the noonday. In the end, rightness will triumph. Good will prevail. This is why we need to, next verse, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Today, God is being patient. Why are you fretting when God is being patient? God is being patient. He's hoping that evil men will repent. He's giving them time and opportunity to to repent of their sin and turn to Him. We too need to be patient. Not lose sight of God's love and of what really matters. He says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. You focus on life's injustices rather than on God's mercies And you get bent out of shape. You become resentful. You begin to lash out. You end up doing more harm to yourself than good. Always remember, bitterness is an acid that does far more damage on where it's stored than on where it's poured. Don't fret it. Here's some great advice. Look at others and be distressed. Look at self and be depressed. Look at Jesus and you'll be at rest. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to rest in Him. Be patient on Him. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the They shall in Boy, that... That was probably the problem. Now give me a little bit more juice there. Okay? Now we're good. Don't fret it. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. Notice this verse. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Recognize that verse? Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 5. The third beatitude. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. When Jesus returns, he'll settle the scores. Evil men will be judged. Meek and those who trusted in the Lord, they'll be rewarded. Verse 12. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him. Why? For he sees that his day is coming. The Lord just laughs. He laughs at the wicked. He knows judgment is just around the bend. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent the bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Verse 16. A little that a righteous man has is better than than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. What good is an armful of ill-gotten gain if God breaks your arms? What good is that? In the long run, it pays to be upright, not wicked. He says, The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, And in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by Him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and He delights in His way. Notice the good man he gives. 
Because he knows that he's going to inherit all things in the end. So he can give some things away now. It's easy. And notice this, I love this. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. The Hebrew word ordered means supported. In other words, the moves motivated by a man's goodness are moves that are supported by the Lord. The Lord gets in on that goodness. He supports a man who has good motives and good intentions. God gets behind the person who aligns his life with his will. Of course, George Mueller used to say, not only are the steps of a good man ordered by the Lord, but so also are his stops. I like that. Both his steps and his stops are ordered by the Lord. Oftentimes God says go. Sometimes he says no. We should be willing to accept both answers. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Isn't that great? We're all going to fall, aren't we? There are going to be times when we're all going to slip. We're all going to fall flat on our face. But just because we fall, it doesn't mean we'll be cast down. God will pick us up. God will keep us going. One, one fall doesn't, doesn't eliminate us from the race. God will pick us up. I have been young and now I'm old, David says. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. You know how you're going to make it through this tough time economically we're having? How are you going to deal with this recession? I, I don't know all the answers, but I do know this. Don't shortchange God. Don't take shortcuts around the will of God. Don't stop honoring Him with your finances and putting Him face first in your business and conducting your practices with integrity and with, with uprightness. All I know is that if you'll do what's right... If you'll uphold righteousness, God will take care of you. David says, hey, he says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. The Lord takes care of those who seek him and delight in his ways. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints, they are preserved forever, but the descendant, descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is, his, is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. I love this. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. Remember that. But there are people watching you. You are the only Bible that some people will ever read. And because you call yourself a Christian and because you've confessed and professed faith in Christ, people are watching you. They're watching your life. And quite frankly, there are some people that are looking for you to slip up so that they can slay your witness. Don't give them that opportunity. I'll, I'll never forget hearing... Pastor Chuck's son one time tell of his mom's insistence about what he put in the trash. And of course, this drove him nuts. She was always on him about what he put in the trash. If he picked up the beer bottle from the neighbor's yard and put it in the trash, she would get all, all over him. Kay was always worried about the family's reputation. And of course, Chuck Jr. thought her mom, his mom just had some strange obsession. You know, Until one day, Chuck Jr. was before the church, and a man came forward and identified himself as their garbage man. He said that he collected garbage for years, and he had inspected Pastor Chuck's garbage to try to find some incriminating evidence that he could use against him, but he had never found any. Apparently, Kay had shown great wisdom. And it just reminds us, the world wants to pick us apart. This is why we need to be careful. We need to live Above reproach. Verse 33. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him. 
but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the wicked shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him. Psalm 37, a wonderful psalm. Psalm 38 is a song of repentance. David wrote it after being extremely sick. In fact, his illness was probably a punishment by God. Notice, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. David has sinned, and God is angry at him. And here David asks God to count to ten before he spanks him. That's, that's, that's a good prayer to pray. Lord, I know you're angry with me. Please count to ten. And I know I need a spanking. But Lord, please cool down before you apply the discipline. I guess that's a fair prayer to pray too. He says, for your arrows pierce me deeply and your hand presses me down. This is a fitting description of God's conviction in our life. Often God pierces us. He presses us. He brings us to our knees so that we'll confess our sin and admit our faults and our failures. David says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. Now, not all illness is the result of sin. We've just gone through the book of Job. And if Job taught us anything, it was just that. That just because things are good doesn't necessarily mean that you're righteous. And just because things are bad or you're sick doesn't necessarily mean that you've sinned. You know, sometimes sickness can come upon us, you know, without a, a, a direct moral cause. You know, we live in a fallen world and therefore we're subject to germs and viruses and bugs and so forth. So, so don't always equate a sickness with some sin in your life. But here, in David's case... His sin had brought on a direct physical illness. It had affected his health in a direct and literal way. He says, For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. He'd done some foolish things and now he's suffering physically. As a consequence, I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Now, he may have just had an intestinal virus. Possible. But his loins are full of inflammation, he says. It's, it's also possible that David could have suffered from an STD, from a sexually transmitted disease. Was this the result of his sin with Bathsheba? Was this the result of him multiplying wives against God's commandments? This is certainly one of the results of sexual promiscuity today. This is one of the consequences of, of illicit sex. Among young people today, STDs are the third most common disease behind colds and flu. Venereal disease. Is that common among our young people? You know, here's a scary truth. When you have sex with someone you're having sex with, everyone else your partner had sex with, and with everyone your partner's partner has had sex with, and on and on it goes. Did you get that? When you have sex with someone, you're having sex with everyone else your partner has had sex with and with everyone your partner's partners have had sex with, and on and on it goes. This needs to be taught to our teenagers and to our middle schoolers. In the wake of the sexual revolution that started in the 1960s, currently 65 million Americans live with an incurable sexually transmitted disease. 65 million Americans. Do you think we made a mistake? Do you think we unleashed Pandora's box? 
Sadly, there are 19 million new infections every year. On American college campuses, genital herpes has reached epidemic proportions. Here's the truth. You don't thumb your nose at God's laws and not pay a price for it. Benjamin Franklin once said, Sin is not hurtful because it is forbidden, but it is forbidden because it's hurtful. God's laws are not intended to spoil our fun. They're intended to ensure our health and our happiness and our protection. Verse 9 tells us, Lord, all my desire is before you, and sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Some scholars think David was stricken by leprosy, and here he talks about the social ostracization that came from that leprous condition. Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek me, seek my hurt, speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear and whose mouth is no response. David has no excuses. You know, he, he, he has no excuse for what he's done. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity, and I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous, and they are strong. And those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries. Because I follow what is good. Isn't it interesting? God was quick to forgive David, but his enemies weren't. They weren't so quick to forgive him. God will forgive you. That doesn't necessarily mean that man will. Or the people that you've harmed will. They're not quite as quick sometimes. He says, do not forsake me, O Lord, my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. David prays this prayer of repentance. God responds and forgives him and restores him. Well, Psalm 39 is a psalm of David. It's written for Jeduthun. The name means praise. Jeduthun was a Levite who was in charge of the temple worship. And so evidently Psalm 39 was intended to be used in the temple praise and worship. Verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. James chapter 3, verse 2 tells us, If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. In other words, the key to living a perfect life or a spiritually mature life is the ability to control and guard your tongue. You can tame that tongue, you're well on the way to a good witness and a good life. David says, I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Now David had held his tongue as long as he could, but his heart was burning. It was on fire. It was a volcano of emotion. And he needed to speak to someone. He needed to vent his frustrations. And so he did it in prayer. This is great. When you need to vent your frustrations, when you need to talk to someone about what's brewing and boiling in your heart, don't pick up the phone and call a friend and gossip. Don't bellyache to your spouse. At least not at first. Don't make an appointment and come and see the pastor. At least not at first. Here's the first thing you should do. Get on your knees and take it to God. Pray. 
Vent your feelings. Express your heart to God. Talk it out with Him. He wants to hear. He loves you. He cares about you. He cares about those feelings. Psalms teaches us that God doesn't mind if we vent to Him. Prayer can be a means of blowing off steam. Again, better to take your feelings to God than to bottle them up or to take them out on someone else. God knows those feelings anyway, doesn't He? And so He's never surprised. Verse 4. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as hand breaths. That was the width of the king's hand. It was a, an official measurement. But it was from, from one side of the hand to the other, a hand breadth. A, a few inches. My life, my days are just a few inches. And my age is as nothing before you. Certainly, every man in his best state is but vapor. And then he says, sila, which means pause and think about that for a minute. David is struck here with the brevity of life. He says, we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. We're like a vapor. You and I, we're, we're nothing more than a puff of warm breath on a cold morning. Here one minute, we're gone the next. Billy Graham once said, the greatest surprise in my life has been its brevity. Verse 6, surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. You know, it's bad enough that life is short. But what compounds our misery is that most men waste away their life on stuff that really doesn't matter anyway. He says they busy themselves in vain. How many of us do that? I like the comment that Ralph Waldo Emerson once made. He said, this time, like every time, is a very good time if we but know what to do with it. The sad truth is, is that most folks are going nowhere and getting there fast. They've busied themselves in vain. They work to make money to feed themselves so they can go back to work and make more money so that they can feed themselves again. Throw in a holiday or two and that's their life. They busy themselves in vain. There's more to life than that. He says, and now Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Here's what makes sense out of this life that we live. Our hope is in Jesus. All else is vanity. Without Jesus, without transcendent truth in our lives, life is a rabbit chase without the rabbit. That's life. You know, this was the message of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything under the sun was emptiness to Solomon. And where did Solomon gain that perspective? From his father David. Apparently Solomon had read Psalm 39. He says, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. You know, when David pondered his dilemma, it dawned on him that God was the cause of what had happened to him. How could he complain when God was in control? You know, we need to realize that some of our struggles are really struggles against God. God is the one who caused that situation. God is the one who's trying to teach us a lesson. We're fighting against the situation. We're really fighting against God. Remember what God said to Paul on the road to Damascus. He said, Paul, why are you kicking against the, the, the goads? Why are you kicking against me? You know, you're, you're fighting, you're bucking, but you're really fighting and bucking against me. Once there was a man who was working at the White House. He got real upset. He slammed the door in anger. When he did, he slammed it just as Abraham Lincoln was walking through the threshold. When he realized he'd slammed the door in the president's face, he began to apologize profusely. He was so sorry. Abraham Lincoln made one comment. He said, young man, why don't you stop fighting with God on the inside? You know, often outward actions mask an inward conflict. 
We are. We're fighting on the inside. We're taking it out on people on the outside, but we're really embroiled in a conflict on the inside. That's what we need to deal with. That's what we need to settle. Verse 10, remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor, Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. The Hebrew word translated stranger means house guest. We're all just house guests in God's world. And too many of us have taken advantage of our host's generosity. We sin. We have failed to be appreciative to Him. We need to confess our sin and trust in God. David's prayer of repentance now becomes fluid. Notice he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. Tears are often called liquid prayers. Here David weeps over his own willfulness. I like what author John Phillips writes. He says, when our situation is so desperate that we are reduced to tears, we can be quite sure that we have finally found the language that persuades. Our tears melt God's heart and move His hand. Often we need to cry over our own sin. The chapter closes with verse 13. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. Well, Psalm 40 was written by David after a severe trial. Quite possibly, it was penned after Absalom's rebellion and David's exile from Jerusalem. The psalm begins, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. I love this. God lifted David out of the mire and put him in the choir. He is taking him from a horrible pit to a heavenly praise. He's picked him up out of the pit and set his feet on a rock. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. Sometimes you just need to sit down and you need to count. Just count up God's blessings towards you. Can you do that? It may surprise you. You may be there a long, long time. You'll probably agree with David that they cannot be recounted. I love the old hymn, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your many blessings. That's what we should be doing over this Thanksgiving weekend, that's for sure. The more you love someone, the more you think of them. Isn't it true? And notice God's thoughts towards us are innumerable. When no one will give you the time of day, remember you have a Father in heaven who can't stop thinking about you. Verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. You know, the Old Testament sacrifices were never intended as a substitute for obedience. More than heifers and lambs, God wants our heart and our lives. All too often, it's easier for us to make a sacrifice than it is to obey what God is calling us to do. You know, we, we walk along, we drop a few bucks in the offering or in the Salvation Army kettle, and, and we think we've paid off our obligation to God, that God's happy with us now. We're mistaken. He doesn't want a token sacrifice. He wants our heart. He wants our obedience. He wants us to be willing to conform our life to His will. In short, He wants our ear. Well, Sandy, what do you mean by that? David says, my ears you have opened. This was probably a reference to an Old Testament practice. You see, in ancient Israel, 
There was no bankruptcy. You had to work off your debts. You became a slave to your, to your creditor. You worked off your debts for seven years. I'm sorry, for six years. And then you were released in the seventh year. That is, if you wanted to be released. There, there were many people who found it difficult to make a living on their own. And, and when they finally, you know, admitted that they couldn't pay their debts and they became a slave to their master, to their creditor, there, there were many situations where the creditor treated them so well. He was so kind. He was so benevolent. He was so generous toward them that at the end of the six years and after their debt had been paid off, they thought, wow, you know, my life is better living here in his house than in trying to make it on my own. I, I would rather just remain this man's slave. And, and here's what would happen. The, the master would bring the servant who had the desire to the doorpost of the house and he would stretch out his ear on the, on the doorpost, and he would drive an awl through his ear and pierce his ear to the doorpost of the house. That was the sign, that pierced ear was the sign that he was now a love slave. Not a slave out of obligation, but now a slave, a voluntary, a, a, a slave who was voluntarily a slave out of love for his master. And this is how Paul saw himself. Remember when he writes his letters in the New Testament, he, he talks about himself as being a bond slave or a love slave of Jesus Christ. Since becoming a Christian, Paul's new life in Christ was so much better than anything he had ever mustered on his own that like David, he opened up his ear to Jesus and he became a slave by choice. He became a love slave of Jesus Christ. Are you a love slave of Jesus have you made the discovery that you're better off in his house under his care than you are on your own? Hopefully you've made that discovery. If not, I hope you'll make it soon. He continues in verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Now there are several Old Testament passages that we think of as messianic prophecies. The passages that speak clearly of Jesus. Isaiah 53, for example. Psalm 22. But prophecies concerning Jesus are not limited to those passages. Here Jesus says, In the scroll of the book it is written of me. In other words, Jesus is on every page. He is from cover to cover. In fact, your Bible is all about Jesus. If you look close enough, you can find Jesus on every single page of this book. And here he says, I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. This is the verse quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. But there, there is a preface. That verse is prefaced with these words. Therefore, when he, when Jesus came into the world, he said. This is great. This is the Christmas story before the Christmas story. This was the son's farewell to his father before he journeyed from his heavenly throne to occupy the womb of a virgin. Jesus said to his father, I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. You know, throughout the ages, God had covered man's sin with the blood of bulls and goats. But God's righteousness had always demanded more. The temple sacrifices pacified God, but they never satisfied His holiness. To blot out man's sin once and for all, it would take a sinless sacrifice. But where do you go to get a sinless sacrifice? Only God's Son could supply what was needed. He alone had a heart that was engraved with God's will. And here is the courage of Christmas. Jesus stepped up to do the Father's will. To come to earth. To give His body and His flesh as a sacrifice for our sin. I delight to do Your will, O oh my God. And Your law is within my heart. Verse 9. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord. You Yourself know. I have not hidden Your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. 
For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. David realizes that he's a sinful man, that he's an evil man, that his sins are more than the hairs of his head. Wow. Do you know if you're blonde, you have 140,000 hairs on your head? I mean originally blonde. I don't mean, you know, you know, blonde later. If you're brunette, you have 125,000 hairs on your head. If you're a redhead, you have 90,000 hairs on your head. Does that mean that blondes are more sinful than redheads? No, it doesn't mean that. You know, it's interesting that Jesus later turns this whole illustration around. Here David says that my sins are like the hairs on my head or the numbers of the hairs on my head. Whereas Jesus turns this around and he says, your father is so concerned for you that he even knows the number of hairs that are on your head. Isn't that interesting? Jesus knew the Old Testament scripture. Jesus knew that that this illustration that David had projected of his sin... He turns it around and he uses it as an illustration of God's care and God's concern. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, God knows your sin. And yet he loves you anyway. And he's forgiven you. And he cares for you. Even to the same extent that you rebelled against him. Now he cares for you to a greater extent. Isn't that beautiful? He says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Psalm 41 was written while David was ill and incapacitated. He was losing control of his kingdom. A rebellion was brewing. His own son, Absalom, was waiting for his chance to seize his father's throne. David writes Psalm 41 in response. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. I mean, David was aware of the rumors. People were saying that he's going to be dead soon. The king's about to die. let's, Let's rally behind another king. This became Absalom's opportunity to rise up and, and take his place. But here the king asked the Lord to preserve his life. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And they were already sizing David up for his coffin. And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it that he here may be Absalom. I mean, when, when his son came to visit David on his sickbed, David knew that sabotage was in his heart. That when he spoke and said, you know, oh, dad, we want you to get better. He was just lying to him. He had other designs on his kingdom. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. My old familiar friend. Against a foe I can defend. But heaven help me against a disloyal friend. The worst wounds are those that are inflicted by a so-called friend. Here David talks about my own familiar friend in whom I trusted. Lifted up his heel against me. 2 Samuel 15 describes how that David's trusted counselor, his close friend, a man named Ahithophel, betrayed David and turned his allegiance toward Absalom 
course, this was also prophetic of Jesus, for the same thing happened to him. He too was betrayed by a familiar friend. Judas was the one who held the money bag. Yet Judas sold out Jesus to the Jews. He too was betrayed by a familiar friend. Psalm 41 concludes, But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And there we have Psalm 41.